Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Jamf Now, the number one device management solution for all your company's Apple devices. To learn more about how Jamf Now can help you secure your Macs, iPads, or iPhones, head to jamf.com/missiondaily to set up your first three devices for free. That's jamf.com/missiondaily, or click on the link in the show notes. On today's episode of the Mission Daily, we have our good friend Sean Shepard in studio. Sean is the founder of GrowthX and has founded multiple businesses, one that didn't work out so well. We talk about that, his many successes and failures as a sales leader, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and we talk about how to get a job that doesn't exist. Stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of The Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, co-founder of The Mission, and I am joined by Sean Shepard, co-founder of GrowthX. What's up, man? How you doing, brother? So Sean and I have a long history together, really, you know, a shared experience with his father being in the military and, and me being in the military. So I feel like it spans before our, where we were even born, but both of our dads were in the military, so you kind of have it that way. Yeah, there's a lot. Our paths have crossed in a lot of different, a lot of different ways. We have mutual, long-standing friends, right? We play golf together. That's true. Sean is, I'd say, uh, about thirty strokes, forty strokes better than me at this point. But that's all right. <laughs> um, but Sean is also uh, has been a mentor of mine and is a sales expert amongst many other things. But what we kind of wanted to talk about today is how to get a job that doesn't exist. Sean authored a really interesting piece. I guess, well, Inc. authored it, but uh, you know, yeah. however it works. Well, there's a couple of things. I did the thing for the for, for the NASDAQ around you know how to hack your career and get the job that you want in 90 days. And then Inc. interviewed me about the skills that matter most in the innovation economy, You know how to prepare the workforce for a future we can't predict. And you know my love for accelerated learning, and I've always been a big supporter of what you and, and Chad are putting together here. I'm happy to finally be here, jet lagged as I am, but I'm 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 stoked about it. Yeah, and Sean just got off a 20 hour flight from Asia, where they're launching the latest GrowthX partnership. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into all that, and then we'll talk about how to get a job that doesn't exist. It's something that I gave a talk on in San Mateo a couple years ago to a bunch of uh, military vets that were getting out of school about this idea that the jobs of the future don't exist right now. And and really what GrowthX is building is that. There are these really obvious careers that we kind of as a society just don't grow up hearing about. You know, we hear about being a doctor. We hear about being a lawyer. We hear about those type of careers, those type of occupations. But what we don't hear about are the majority of jobs that are in the business world or out of the business world that drive a huge amount of impact and revenue all around us. And I'm a GrowthX mentor. I'm a huge fan of their program and just excited to be able to talk about this. So can you share kind of your scope of responsibilities and kind of the founding story of GrowthX? We got started. So the high level pitch of GrowthX these days is 
we invest in companies, we help them grow, we develop the talent to work in them, and then we bring together the community to be created a sustainable entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystem. Sort of like building your own Silicon Valley where you are, if you will, but doing it in an intentional and coordinated way so that you stop losing your top talent and the economic impact of those people to places like the Valley. And it started when we were all Myself and all, all of my partners are serial entrepreneurs turned investors, and you know most of them, but for the benefit of the audience, you know, I've, I've built and, and sold three technology companies in a wide variety of products, markets, and, and verticals. This is my fifth company. I also had a very ex expensive learning experience in the middle of all that. My other partner, Will Bunker, who you know is a former Marine, we don't hold that against him, founded what became Match.com on only $90,000 of investment, bootstrapped. Andrew Goldner was the chief technology counsel at DoubleClick, which became AdWords, and then he acquired Reuters for the Thompson Financial family and was a global publisher of that, while he was also a top tech lawyer at Skadden in New York during the first dot-com era. And we definitely don't hold that against him. <laughs> That's right. He likes to say he's a recovering lawyer. And then uh, and Russell Lewis, who also had a military background, was from South Africa and a biochemist that invented the truck bed liner and Rhino Linings, which has 2,000 products in over 80 countries to this day, and he's still the executive chairman of that 40 years later. So we have varying backgrounds as entrepreneurs and investors, and we were investing alongside each other, and we were seeing companies starting to fail for really what we felt were the wrong reasons. You get the email that say, says, uh, we're, we're shutting down the company because we weren't able to raise any more money, or we ran out of money. And we'd say you weren't allocating the limited resources and time that you had to figure out how to create a more permanent, sustainable, successful, and profitable business in the right areas. So we built a, a, a model to address that big problem. And instinctually, we knew we, we knew we were right, that these companies weren't failing because their product and technology didn't work. They were failing because their market marketing and selling wasn't working. And then lo and behold, Several years later, CB Insight starts to track this stuff and actually confirms all of our suspicions that eight of the top 10 reasons why companies fail have to do with markets and the people who are running the companies. They have nothing to do with the products. Yet in the Valley, everybody loves the product and is very product focused. And we deify developers and we vilify sellers and marketers. When the reality is, is that those times have changed. We now live in this era of what we call the age of applied technology, where my contention is, is that it's never been easier to get a product to market. And as, as a result, it's never been harder to sell it. And so we just simply need to apply a little bit more emphasis earlier on in the development process to markets and problems and customers and the techniques to find the truth about where a product fits in the market. And so we started to put together a way to help our companies through that process, but not just the process. It's a methodology and it's an approach, right? It's an attitude, it's a way, but it's a measurable one. And it worked. So our, our seed stage fund, we're on our second fund, is doing incredibly well. We've more than outperformed the market with our approach. Part of what we had to do was hack VC as well, because the traditional VC model was not built to help companies at the seed stage. When you write a $100,000 check for a company, you're paid $2,000 a year to care about them. That doesn't work for us. We're not traditional VCs. We're entrepreneurs. I said, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. So Andrew and the team went to work on, on structuring a different model for our accelerator program, which is focused on marketing products and making money, not developing products and raising money like traditional 
accelerators are. And those are fine. I'm not knocking them. They serve a good purpose in the world. There's over 7,000 of them, but very few of them are actually helpful when it comes to getting traction. So we built it, what we call MXP, our market acceleration program, as a program that operates within the fund. So once we write a check for somebody and the conditions are right and they want to work with us on the, on the accelerator program, we actually put a market development team to work with them fishing alongside them while teaching them to fish. And then eventually we needed to replace ourselves with other great fishermen and women to continue to help those companies grow. And what we realized very quickly was, is that most of those people don't, those people don't exist. The traditional university and education systems do not educate and train people for modern selling and marketing and design thinking techniques, the things that move the needle and technology companies on the, on the market side. So we launched Growth X Academy as a, a boot camp. That was like a coding boot camp, but not for coding. It was for teaching marketing, teaching entrepreneurial selling, and teaching uh, UX design. Within the context of technology companies, and more specifically, to start within the context of being the first seller, marketer, designer in a company, which you know, Ian, is very different than being the 10th or the 50th or the 100th, because it's not just about what you know and what you need to be able to do. It's how you behave and how you manage yourself and you manage the learning and you manage the process to, to find what ultimately was a goal for us, which is product market fit. So when a company finds product market fit, they can control their own destiny. They can go raise more money at a higher valuation, which is great, or they can start building a, a business that creates economic impact and jobs and, and value for, for themselves, their families, and their community. And then that turned into an opportunity for students that went through the program which were adult learners, many coming out of the military, wanting to transition into tech. Most of them very educated. Many of them already had one or more degrees, they w- but they never worked in tech. They came out of being a lawyer or a doc, traditional roles, right? The things that society tells us that are honorable and the things that we should want to do, even though we're miserable doing them. And so they went to work on real projects with the startups in our portfolio and other startups in the community. So they got experience. The startups got free help and value add, and then potentially there's a match and a relationship for future employment and, and growth together. And then we build the the community of mentors like yourself around that to support it, right? It's where they can source that talent, they can refer talent in. One of the most common references is somebody calls an E and goes, hey, my son or daughter wants to work in tech. Can you help me get a job? And then Ian goes, just send them to the academy and they'll take care of it, right? Yep. And that's the transition. You spend three months and you focus on that and, and you get fully immersed in, in, in the environment. So it worked really well. Then big corporations started to come to us after working with our startups and hiring our people and saying, there's something different about the talent that's coming out of your place as well as the startups. And, and we want to play with you. We want to be a part of that too. And, it, and, and what you find out and what we learned was is that corporations had the same problem finding those kind, that kind of talent to help commercialize their new innovations. And it's essentially their term for taking a new product to market. So we started to help them. And then before you know it, you've got this ecosystem that's been built where everybody's helping each other. You have investors and entrepreneurs who are fully aligned and doing what's in the best interest of growing the company, creating value. You've got an academy to develop the talented people that want to work with those people because that's what a company is, just a group of humans. And then you've got a group of customers and potential investors who, in the form of corporations, who want to leverage the, the, the technologies from the startups, who want to hire the talent, who want to reskill and upskill their workforce because we know what's coming in this innovation economy. 
people need new skills if they want to maintain their, their value in the marketplace. And before you know it, you have this ecosystem that feeds on itself. And what we learned about it, which is most interesting, was this has been tried many times over in most any community. How do we inject capital, talent, and know-how into, into an environment so that we can develop our economy, create jobs, diversify our economy away from maybe traditional natural resources-based or, or legacy industrial economies? But they don't ever really work out very well. And the reason is they weren't co coordinated. There was two major things missing from those ecosystems. Number one was the know-how. Like, what's the framework for helping invest in a company, helping it grow, developing the talent to work in it, and helping them get customers? Where's that framework? It didn't exist. We built it because we built it to solve our own problem, right? So now you've got that. Then the second thing that was missing is a business model. Everybody who tries to do this goes to the government for money, which is fine to a degree, but it's not sustainable. And it's typically very transactional or it might be project-based. And so when the economy takes that, governments start to care about putting money into these things. But the moment things turn back around, they ignore it and they no longer fund them. So therefore, these things don't last very long. But with tuition from the academy and professional services or consulting fees from helping funded startups and corporations take advantage of this community and commercialize their innovations, you now have a sustainable business model for everyone. So you don't have to go back to the well every year asking the government for money. And so countries started to approach us and say, let us, you know, we want you to come here. And we're not old guys, but, you know, we've been doing this 25 years, right? We've been entrepreneurs. We didn't want to go build a consulting company, but the model that we've created and the content around it and the structure on how to leverage it and support it, we could license that. And so we have. And so now we've got top entrepreneurs in partnership with public, with the public sector in their own communities, trying to replicate the Valley using our, our model and approach. And it's working really well. We've, we've launched in South Korea and we've launched in Malaysia. We're in talks with nearly a dozen other countries around the globe, and it's all just kind of been organic and inbound. But now we've taken a step back and, and, and said, you know, I think our job is to design and deliver the most relevant content and learning opportunities for these communities to consume in the way that is best that best serves their their market and a license it off to them and so now i'm spending most of my time traveling the world talking to people about how to build sustainable innovation ecosystems i think it's really interesting that i mean obviously i'm a huge fan of growth hacks and, and a mentor and all that but i think it's really interesting to approach the problem from like working the money backwards. So startups need to sell more in order to stay alive. At the end of the day, you know, like there's, yeah. I don't know who said it, but there's two functions in, in a company. There's making the product and selling the product and that's it, right? Yeah. So, you know, in that selling the product, you need to have a good design. You need to have your website designed correctly that can be the funnel that brings in lead gen. You need to get those leads from marketing and you need to close those leads with sales. And that tip of the spear of the entire kind of like, how do we make money as a company is just something that we straight up don't teach in schools. And you're famous no, for- No, because most people most people are teaching in schools have never had to make money. They've never had to sell anything. They've never had a real job outside of academia. 
they're steeped in theory, not in, not in practicum. And as a result, there's just this inculcation of nonsense that's I, useless. I, I went back and I looked at my marketing textbook last year just to check it out. Just think, I mean, like this is common sense, but- The four Ps. Yeah, but, yeah right. <laughs> Facebook didn't exist, right? No. So you're talking about, you know, Facebook and Google control 80% of marketing spend and right yeah. to, in today's economy. And this was something that was not, it did not exist when this book was written. How right. could you possibly be a marketer? How could you possibly come out of school and be a marketer and go into a marketing job without that? And obviously like yeah. times change, but they don't change fast enough. And the thing well, at that- least there's a at least there's a degree for marketing. There's not even a degree for selling. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you know, that's my other old soapbox deal is that fifty percent of college graduates end up in human centered roles with no background, education, or experience in what the hell to do. And then we then we're shocked why it costs us so much to train these people, why turnover is so high. And we're largely ineffective in the first five years of our selling and marketing careers. And and then you go get an MBA, and then you're like you're re, you're just hitting the tear button on your career. Yeah, but I but I and think, then yeah, you've just added another quarter million in debt to your family. So I think why this topic of how to get a job that doesn't exist is so interesting is it's not just about the careers that don't exist, because there are sales and marketing careers. But I think it's so much about the companies that don't exist yet. That's right. Because when you are what is known as the Renaissance rep, when you were the first salesperson or second salesperson or first marketer or second marketer at a startup or small company or growing company, that particular role has never existed in this world. So when you go into that, it doesn't matter all of the practical or the theories or everything, all you have is to say, I have to look at this brand new experience, this brand new thing yep. that has never existed before and make sense of it mm-hmm. for your founding team or your leadership or whatever and make sense of it to yourself. And we're seeing it in corporate now too, because we've what we call the renaissance rep in the startup, we're calling the role of the commercialization lead or leader or commercialization officer in a corporation. So now we're starting to teach that world that look if you want to innovate effectively it's not just about building products it's about finding product market fit for those products and you need somebody to drive that function and that person is a commercialization leader it's not just a seller it's not just a marketer it's not just a product person it's not just a designer it's somebody who can do a little bit of all four of those things while driving that process and you have to do it like that's the other thing that with growth x graduates that we've talked to they actually do the stuff that we're talking about. They're building websites, they're measuring conversions, they're building funnels, they're talking to human beings about things that they can buy. That is extremely differentiated from older models. And ultimately, when you go to your first company as a salesperson and they're looking at you and saying, hey, this is how we've been selling and now you have to do this, Mm -hmm. like that is ground zero. Mm-hmm. And the only place that you can go, it's just sink or swim. And at the end of the day, it's just the results that are going to matter because that's that company goes under or doesn't because of what your sales targets are. That's the fundamental premise, underlying premise behind all of this is that you have limited time and money to learn. The average startup, if it's funded and funded well, has 12 to 18 months to learn. And if you don't either raise another round or or get yourself to break even, you're screwed. In a big company, when they're trying to innovate and then things don't work out. You know, you see the Homer Simpson giphy of 
them slowly moving back into the bushes because they stopped managing the process and the, and the innovation started managing their career. And so when we talk about jobs that don't exist, yeah. there's the difference between an open requisition that someone is trying to fill. I need a sales associate. I need yep. a business development representative. I need a marketing associate. That's a job that exists. That's you are adding to the capacity that they already have that has a leader over it that probably mm -hmm. knows what they're doing. We're talking about jobs that don't exist. And a lot of times that wasn't even necessarily a role that they were hiring for. And the advantage of the person seeking those roles is that they get to create it for themselves yes. because they get to figure out what this role entails, figure out how to drive results. That's an empowering place to be as a 18, 19, 20, 25, 40-year-old, wherever you're at in your career, to be the person that gets to you know, make a difference for the future of the company. So how do, what are those skills? What are the things that, that people out there that are listening that want to build that skill set, build that capacity, what can they do? Or leaders that are listening, what are those type of skill sets that you're looking to hire for? Yeah, there's, there's, really, there's really two sides to this, Ian. One is what are the skills necessary in the innovation economy to identify and perform roles that don't exist yet? So that's one piece of it. The second is how do you identify and create that job opportunity for yourself, right? Like, What does that process look like? And then certainly the third is, is if you are a manager or a leader who's thinking about how to develop people for the roles of the future or reskill and upskill your workforce, you've got to take this within context. So let's start, let's start with the skills. So in, the, in this fourth industrial revolution, as it's been coined by the World Economic Forum, where 40% of the jobs that exist today will not exist you know, by whatever, 2030 or 2050. I can't remember what the numbers are exactly, but you can look it up on the WF website and you can see it. You know, how do we prepare our workforce so that we don't have 40% unemployment? And, and I'm, to me, it's, I'm not a fear monger about any of this stuff. I'm quite optimistic. If you just look through each of the prior industrial revolutions, you'll see that every time technology takes away one set of jobs, it creates another set. In 1900, 38% of our, it was 38, maybe 40% of the American workforce was, was farming. Today it's 3%. We don't I have, have 37% unemployment. I have a great anecdote for you. There's a technology that was created and New York City was trying to implement this and a lot of, lot of pushback. One of the main proponents was a group that didn't want jobs to be taken. And they're like, this technology is too dangerous, blah, 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 blah. That technology was electricity. And the people that didn't want it to happen were the lamplighters. Of course. So like we, we have to be able to right set our expectations of, do we want to live in a future that is better than what we're living in? There's going to be massive trade-offs. And that doesn't mean that yeah. we can leave behind the people that are the lamplighters. Like it's no. extremely important to upskill those people. That's right. But you also can't have an attitude like yellow cab. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you as a person or you as an organization do not want to be the next yellow cab in the age of Uber because it's coming, whether you like it or not. So what is it about the innovation economy? Let's start with that. It is that change is so rapid that you can't predict what company's going to be doing what. You've cited Google and Facebook. Your marketing book says nothing about uh, micro-targeting or lookalike audiences because those, those even weren't a thing. The S&P 500, the average lifespan um, of a company on the S&P 500 in 1970 was 75 years. Today, it's 15. That's wild. And now some of the predictions are that a third of the S&P 500 in 2030 doesn't even exist yet. 
Wow. And we don't even know the names of those companies. Companies Jeff like Bezos, The Mission. Jeff Be- yes, correct. Just companies like The Mission. Jeff Bezos just came out two days ago and openly said to his shareholders, I'm worried that we that Amazon will not exist in 30 years. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want people to think about that for a second. Because what do they really make? What do they really do? What do they really own that's proprietary and defensible? Not a thing, really. Yeah. Because we can go anywhere for, for web support and cloud services, which was never their business to begin with. They just overbought in the first dot-com era and ended up with all this excess bandwidth and got lucky and, well, I need to do something with this. And that's what happened. But everything else is about owning a customer experience. And who can't take that from them? If Amazon gets lazy, gets fat, starts treating their customers the way that yellow cabs, cab drivers would, would treat us before Uber existed, right? So all of that can be taken away. And then certainly there's government regulation and there's all these other things that are looming. So wait a second, but we hear all the time from investors that you need to have something proprietary that you do that nobody else can do except for Amazon that's customer obsession. So yeah, it turns I, out you can over-execute. You can do it better than anyone else. Yeah, I was talking company. with a major automotive parts manufacturer recently. And I said, do you know who your number one competitor is and will be? It's going to be Amazon. It's not going to be the other auto part makers. If Amazon decides that it wants to carry your competitors' brands and push those brands through its customer experience, you're screwed. So you have two choices. You can either sidle up with Amazon and figure out a way to work with them and deliver through their experience, which you should. And then you should hedge by trying to replicate that experience for your direct business. And you should have some type of subscription economy type thing where exactly. people, you can have own the experience directly. Like It's like yeah. stuff like that where you're like, why in the future would I want to go to a, to get hassled at a car manufacturer like yeah. when have we when have we ever had a good experience with one of those and it's like or why would i go to a jewelry store in the mall i recently just bought jewelry it was the worst experience ever to buy yeah. jewelry store at a mall it's like i would rather have a direct experience with someone that was flawless rather than getting jammed up by a million conversations that that's right and that's what design thinking is all about is creating that kind of experience right effortless pleasurable. What do, what does my customer think, do, and feel at every step? And what can I do to maximize that opportunity to create this long-term relationship? Because but, that's what's going to ultimately be the thing that, that saves you. But those are created by people. And I think that that's the misnomer that I think people don't realize. Those experiences are created by like growth X graduates, right? Yes. They're created by these market developers that are figuring out ways to eliminate uh, barriers to buying that are figuring out ways to obsess about the customer. Like all of those are people that learned all of those things by just getting customer feedback and applying the theories, the types of theories that you're teaching. Yeah. And that's what the, again, and that's the essence of what the innovation economy is all about. In the age of applied technology, it, we can quickly build new tech and new experiences to serve any needs. And as, as a result of that, that always creates a whole new set of, of, issues that need to be dealt with, opportunities and problems that need to be solved. And so how do you prepare a workforce for that environment where things are changing so quickly and they have to change with it or be out in front of it? And so there's what I would say five key skills that matter. Uh, The first is mindset. Number one, a growth mindset or a growth X mindset as we like to call it. But Carol Dweck at Stanford University and all of our early child development work studied and and continues to study how do we respond to failure as humans and it's interesting when you're young you respond very well to it as you get older you respond less 
less well. And I always like to use the example of toddlers trying to learn how to walk. The average toddler falls 17 times in an hour while learning how to walk. But you've never heard of, you've never seen a headline in the news that says toddler goes, I'm going to crawl the rest of my life. <laughs> right? That's so good. We all figure it out and we don't let anything get in our way. Yet somewhere along the lines, we start hearing no, society starts to put us in environments where we have to manage to results. So we avoid mistakes and we're afraid of failure and all that stuff happens. And before you know it, you're in a, you're in a, a very fixed position in life and there's no growth to that. Whereas a growth mindset says exactly the opposite. Failure is my next opportunity to learn. And it's only failure if I don't learn from it. Um, it says that every aspect of who I am and what I do is available for improvement. It also says, I don't have to be born, say, with the gift of gab to become a great communicator. I can, with deliberate intent and practice, accomplish anything through the concept of mastery and the building blocks of mastery, knowledge, competency, proficiency, and ultimately mastery. And the only thing standing in my way of doing that is me, no one else, nothing else. I take the word rejection and I completely remove it from my vocabulary and I replace it with feedback. And I view feedback as a gift because to me, the truth matters more than anything else. And I want to learn and I love to learn. I want to be a learn it all, not a know it all. Those are all the kind of the elements of, of, of growth mindset. And anyone can shift their mindset with the, by changing their belief system and taking action and just actually watching and measuring the results from that. So first you've got to have that foundation of a mindset, of a growth mindset, whether it's the individual or it's an organization. But let me, let me jump in there and say that part of the thing that I found liberating about growth mindset that helped my journey, and I know Chad would say the same thing, and being here in Silicon Valley was meeting other people who had a growth mindset. Because that's the piece. When you're around the negative Nancys, when you're yeah. around fixed mindset people, when you're around the people of- It's hey, hard right, to break out. Yeah, it's really hard. And it's hard it's to hard. be innovative. It's like trying to be creative with a bunch of people who say that's a dumb idea, right? Like It's, it's not one of the reasons why it's so hard to get out of poverty. And we know this now from the, from the modern neuroscience and, and the stress that's put on the frontal lobe during early childhood development from being in poverty affects judgment and decision-making and logic and reason and when there's no you know the frog in the well knows nothing of the ocean right you yeah. don't see the opportunities that exist outside because you're stuck in this cycle whether it's an, a cycle of poverty or it's a cycle of negativity and you and i both kind of grew up in similar circumstances so we kind of share that same sort of piece which is you have to learn this stuff and it's hard yeah like it's not easy to change your thinking it's not you know, we talk we we talk about you know the stoicism side of things, yeah. and we talked about it at length on this. But it's not just saying that you can read some stoics and like develop that thing. I mean, I, that's definitely not how it worked for me. What worked for me was the practical application of talking to human beings, yes. seeing them be happier by the work that we've done for them, and like taking satisfaction in that. That was the thing where I was like, wow, if I implement this stuff, they are happier. Like this is real. That's the behavior. So when you talk about our pedagogy and how we deliver experiential learning, it's say at the academy, it's knowledge. What do you need to know? What are those concepts that you can achieve mastery around? But then it's behaviors. So you've got knowledge, skills, and behaviors. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to be able to do. And then here's, you need to, here, here's how you need to behave while performing it, doing it, and then how you react when things don't go well. Because it's not how we act. It's how we react that defines who we are and whether or not we grow. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. And yeah, it hurts. And yeah, it's hard. It's supposed to be all of those things. Otherwise, how would you separate yourself from the herd? 
All right. So kind of quick final thoughts here. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast and we're going to have more Sean Shepard in the future on the missions podcast. Definitely going to have you on marketing trends soon. Any kind of final words of wisdom of how to get a job that doesn't exist to our listeners? Yeah. So the first thing is, is that you have to be able to identify and clearly define a problem and gain agreement from the employer of that job or of that opportunity that that problem does in fact exist and get them to recognize that they need to do something about it. It's all about that. When you think about a job, think about a job as a job to be done. What is the job to be done? Why does it need to be done? What would the benefits be of actual measurable and quantifiable benefits of that job being done? How would you go about doing that job? And what is what do we think that's worth? And so in order to do that, you need to have a couple of other things. Beyond mindset, you've got to have business acumen. So you need to know how business models run. You need to know how people make money and how you can contribute to that. The third is market acumen. Can you rapidly and accelerate your learning and, uh, and expertise around a given subject matter? The fourth is communication. Can you articulate the value proposition based on what you understand about somebody's business and their market and how you can contribute to it? And then the final one is empathy. It's EQ. In the, it's, I like to say EI in the age of AI, right? Emotional intelligence. Can you connect with those people? Can you develop your people skills? Because the soft skills in the innovation economy are, are going to be more, are more important than the hard skills. And ironically, they call them soft skills when they're the hardest to master. I've never understood that. I'll, I'll give a quick example of this. Let's say you are you really want a job at a media company. You could posit a guess that one of the things that's super valuable to them is the number of subscribers. Mm-hmm. If you emailed me right now and said, Ian, I could get the mission 100 more people to subscribe to your podcast because I think they'd be really interested in the content. Give me a tracking link and I'll yeah. show you I can do it. And if you came back with 100 people, I'd be like, wow. Let's, this, let's get a thousand. Let's uh, yeah. get a hundred thousand. It's 000. like, hey, yes. we'll bring you on as a contractor tomorrow, right? Yes. If you are a, let's say you're, a, you want a, you know, job at maybe a slightly bigger company, and you say, and you go to someone who's a sales or marketing person, you say, hey, I really like your product. I think it's really interesting. I really want a job at your company. You know, I'm going to go get you ten leads. And if you go and bring that results, it matters. If you go to a company that's, right. that's a startup that maybe doesn't have the best website. And you go, hey, I think that this page could be improved. If you go into Squarespace, build the page for free and bring it to them and say, hey, I think this page would convert a little bit better than yours, we should A-B test them. Here you go. So both of those are prime examples. And this is what I would say about that. The first one assumes that you have that solid business acumen because what did you do? You under, you found out what metrics mattered to the mission. The metrics that matter to the mission are subscribers, right? So you went through the process of understanding who their customer is, what they do for them and how they make money. By the way, we love all of you. measure that. Yes. Our community is the most important thing here at the mission, so. Community first, absolutely. So you've got to have that, right? You've got to have A, a growth mindset that says, I'm not afraid to fail if I reach out to Ian and and get rejected, right? The second is I got to have a business acumen that helps me understand how the mission runs its business, makes money, and how they measure that, right? Yep. And then on the second example, I would say, to finish on the first one, from that you can show real value by saying, I can get you 100 
new people. I know, and let's talk about what that's worth, right? We can convert 100 new subscribers. So that's a solid value proposition. That tells me what you will do for me. The second one was more about what you do. Oh, I think your website could be better. And here's how I would improve that. That's good too, but there's a better message behind that. What does it mean if you actually do improve that website for me? And you A-B test out that your site solution, copy, positioning, and every multivariant in that analysis is better than the, than the current site. You still need to understand that because if you can understand that and articulate that, you've just taken a selling prop and turned it into a value prop. And it's a big difference because a selling prop tells me what you do. A value prop tells me what you do for me. And I want to know what you do for me. And if you do that, you will separate yourself easily from 90% of the people out there because 90% of the people don't know this approach and don't want to implement it. I love it. Sean, thanks so much for hanging out. We encourage everyone to have a GrowthX mindset, right? And <laughs> uh, and also check out GrowthX if you're interested, gxacademy.com. GrowthX.com and gxacademy.com are both, both up. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Ian. Hey, this is Ian from The Mission. I talk to Fortune 500 CIOs and IT visionaries about how much effort and energy they put into securing their devices. But they have teams of hundreds of IT professionals, an advantage that the average business doesn't have. Until now. Jamf now makes it easy to set up, manage, and protect your company's Apple devices. As your business grows, so does your digital inventory, making it harder to manage everyone's Apple devices. This is especially true if you have remote employees, like we do at The Mission. With Jamf now, you can check your digital inventory, distribute Wi-Fi and email settings, deploy apps, protect company data, or even lock and wipe a device as needed, from anywhere. And all of this with no IT experience needed. The Mission Daily listeners can start securing their businesses today by setting up their first three devices for free forever. Add more starting at just $2 a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com slash mission daily. That's jamf.com slash mission daily. We love Jamf and you will. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.